Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we explore the art of improving existing software with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, Murray Steele joins us from sunny, sunny, sunny London. Murray is currently an engineering manager at Clio AI and a longtime organizer within the London Ruby community. Murray Steele, I am so delighted to have you join me today on Maintainable. Welcome. Thanks for having me, Robbie. So as you reflect on your vivid experience in the industry, what do you believe are a few common characteristics of, dare I say, well-maintained and or maintainable software? Yeah, I like coming on to this, I've been thinking about that quite a lot. And as a listener, I've been reflecting on it every time I hear you ask this question. So it's quite exciting to finally answer it myself. My answer on this has changed over time. What I think is most interesting to me right now is code that is easy to sort of turn off and delete because like where I work is an early stage startup. We're interested in shipping features, seeing if they work and if they don't, like backing away, getting rid of it as easily as possible. And so I think code that's easy to delete is self-contained, small, focused, um, and doesn't like spread itself, spread its concepts throughout the rest of the of the system. How often do people get to actually delete code, or is that actually you think a symptom of the fact that we write code that tends to bleed a little too far, and it's not easy, kind of like cut around the edges and just remove it? Yeah, I think projects I've worked on in the past, there's always this stuff that's there that you're just like. I don't know if this is still running. I don't know if this is important. Like the tests say this code still works, but the paths into it are like unknowable to us. And so we don't feel comfortable touching it. We don't feel comfortable removing it. So we're just going to like live with this load on our backs. And what you want to be able to do to help the, the total system, to help the total system is get rid of it, excise that weight that you don't need and like make the whole system smaller and lighter weight. And, you know, your, your build time will go down because your tests won't take so long because that code was well tested, which is why you know it works, but you don't know if it's being used. Um, Have you found there to be some effective ways to years, a couple years down the road where we don't always, if you hadn't designed it in a certain way, but to identify those areas that potentially could be open up for, um, having that conversation, like, oh, like, how do we track down, effectively track down unused or very rarely used code? What I think has helped me the most when I've been trying to do this kind of work, and it's always trying, not necessarily succeeding, is what sort of insight do you have in your in your code? Like, do you have good logging? Do you have good trace traceability? Is your system emitting events or like tracking of some kind? So you can like see users going through your system and hitting various parts of the code. So like in a standard sort of web application, looking back over the last 30 days, is this endpoint ever being hit? Do you see any gets or posts going in your logs to this endpoint? That's like a very basic way of saying, well, if we're never hitting that endpoint, then at least that. Rails terminology here, like that controller and those actions can go away. 
you then want to then once you know what can go away, maybe you can start tracing through. Okay, those call sites have gone away. Is anyone else calling this underlying service code? And tracing down from the entry points into the system. But it's not always as simple as that. And it might be, yeah, there's so much branching in the controllers that you're trying to work out, okay, is this controller ever called with these parameters that will trigger this service? And that gets harder. And that's where you need to go away from just looking at your HTTP access logs to something else. Interesting. Yeah. How have you been able to, is this something that you feel like teams are like, have enough conversations about like, you know, it's one thing to point out, here's the things that we're dealing with, like, let's say technical debt. And we'll get to that in a moment, but in terms of like the things that may not, I mean, I guess you're probably ending up, I guess it is a form of technical debt. Maybe, maybe you agree with that or not, but in terms of tracking down these areas, it's like, I don't, I don't always like, it's almost like hunting down things like with a very intentional, like, are there areas that are just not being used that we can get rid of just to clean the slate a little bit to reduce some of the cognitive load of what we need to, anyone needs to think about when they're understanding the whole system or when you're just working on like a particular area, like I'm having to work around this thing. And then there's being this like a little nagging sense of like, but is that even being used? Cause I'm spending all the time having to deal with it. That's a concern. Or I'm like, do I have to extend this or not? But am I extending, am I going to break something? Well, we have tests that will prevent that, but then you keep working around the, uh, and now just kind of thinking and ruminating a little bit over the idea that there's a bunch of dead code out there or unused code, maybe not dead, but unused code or rarely used code that everybody's like working around and like patching on top of that could potentially just be completely stripped out of there. Yeah, absolutely. Like I, I think as a, as a software engineer, like you come to the system and you're like, well, the system that as it stands right now is the complete and total system and everything that's there must be important. And yet you know that that's not really true because you probably wrote it three months ago and you're like scratching your head like, oh, I remember that we maybe turned that off. And or there are like 12 users still using this thing and we need to support it. And the pain that, that I most frequently feel around that kind of code is that when you're doing upgrades, when you're updating dependencies and you're like, oh, this thing here still uses that dependency, so we can't get rid of this dependency. And have we turned that feature off yet? I don't want to have this conversation, so I'm just going to do the update. You know, you're just like, what I want to do is is get this security patch onto my onto my um, main branch. I don't want to have to just to like work out if I can delete a bunch of code in order to do that because it feels those are like separate concerns. You want to want to separate them. You be like, okay, just get this security patch out later. Can we get rid of all of this stuff? Because if it turns out they're wrong and you get rid of some 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 feature as part of a security patch, then to roll it back, you have to get rid of the security patch. And that doesn't feel good. No, no, definitely not. Do you use the uh, metaphor technical debt at all in your day-to-day work? Yeah. So one of our principles at um, Clio, the, the place I work, is that technical debt is useful. So... We are an early stage startup. I think I said this already. Um, we need to ship features, find out if they work. And there's no point in architecting something beautiful if you ship it and get a big resounding meh from your users. So we want to ship things early and quickly. And if they work, we iterate on them and make them more robust and sort of productionize them or harden them or whatever you want to say and architect them more fully once we know that they're useful. 
But to get there, we're quite happy intentionally taking on technical debt. But, you know, like, oh, for example, like this, this new service, just we're not going to handle all of these edge cases. That, I think, is an intentional form of, of technical debt. Or this new service, we're just going to, like, shoehorn it in. We're not going to, like, architect it beautifully. We're just going to make it work. And we know that's not going to scale. We know that's not going to work, like, long term. But it's enough for a test, you know, against a handful of users or whatever. Do you? Is there a difference in that scenario? Do, do you call that like a prototype or anything or is that like a, i guess if you're pushing it out to a production environment like where's that distinction between a prototype to like a proof of concept versus something that's going to persist and exist in the the platform beyond its initial version do you then go back and kind of on a case-by-case basis and completely rip it out and like do it maybe i'm air quoting for those listening uh the right way the second time or do you just iterate on that further in the past, in previous roles, I've definitely talked about building prototypes. And then some years later, you're like, oh, right, the prototype is is the production thing. We never got the chance. And so I don't know how comfortable I am saying, talking about prototypes in a typical sort of startup or agile, like, I'm going to work on this forever, long-term thing. Because I, I just don't think people do go back and tear apart the prototypes and go, okay, cool, we learned we learned a lot, now let's do it properly. I think you need to like always be refactoring forwards, refactoring your services, not not your infrastructure. And so I think like prototypes, you're just gonna build on top. I think you're just gonna build on top and you have to be very you have to be intentional about it. And you have to be very careful not to call out a prototype. Because I think when you call out a prototype, you expect to throw it away and rebuild it. And I think that doesn't often happen really, without being very intentional. And it's very hard sell often to say to someone, we built this and it's running. Now we need to build it again properly. We're going to do it for real this time. I yeah. mean, it's it's for real working. So yeah, I, I get that. And that, that was always a thing, I feel like probably 10, 15 years ago, I remember just thinking of, and having conversations with people about the concept of what a prototype was. Because I felt like we were using it a little bit in the industry a little too too often and i was like well you're not really tossing it out like a prototype and like like i feel like you're when you you're probably spending more time building your prototype than you would be if you knew that you're going to throw away and redo it because you're probably like well i don't want to like cut too many quarters you know i just to test it out because I'm, I'm assuming you're making you're still investing time i don't know are you ready are you producing like automated tests for your air, air quoting prototype or not and then you know so it's like why, why bother with a lot of those other types of things? Um, I, I don't know, I guess at least have those conversations. But anyways, it's a, I feel like now that I don't hear prototype used so often as like a term, so I thought it was just curious about that. But then I feel like now it's just like, oh, MVP is what we now call it. It's like our MVP version or we're going to experiment with this or we're going to, it's a, it's like a real world version, which becomes the thing. And so it's, it's, it's just, we start iterating on top of that from there. But it's interesting to hear your perspective on that. So, but with the, within so in, in your in your ecosystem with technical debt being seen as a good thing and a way to help you get there and test things out, do you find that there are people or in your experience or even yourself like how you might have mislabeled something as technical debt in the past? 
Yeah, absolutely. I think I have been as guilty as every other software developer of saying, oh, this is technical debt because it sounds really impressive. What you mean is this is just not how I would have done it. And as I get like more senior in my career, I'm like, yeah, like uh, how I would do something now is completely different to how I would do something six months ago, a year ago, even three months ago, really. Like I'm, I'm always changing and getting better. And so in that respect, everything you write is technical debt. It's if you if you're framing it like that. And so I think it's it's very dangerous to just frame technical debt as just not what I would have done. You know, a lot of a lot of code is written that you're like, well it's not what I would have done, but it doesn't mean it's technical debt. I think technical debt has to be much more intentional. I think we're guilty as an industry of not really having that conversation particularly well. Like we all learn the term technical debt and it applies to code we don't like. Whereas in fact, that's not a debt because you're never going to pay it off, usually. And it wouldn't make any sense to pay it off. Whereas I think there is something real about intentional technical debt where you're like, we know that this won't work for these reasons and we are happy and accepting of that. Even better if you have some kind of can I stretch the metaphor? Some kind of ledger with a due date, or which is less, maybe less a due date, but more a kind of due feature set. We're like, we know that this will no longer work at this scale, or we know that this will no longer work when we need to roll out this next feature, but it'll get us there. And I think that is something that we could be better at as organizations is not just having, we should fix this on a a backlog that's a thousand miles long that you you are terrified to look into, but like a much more intentional. Here is here is technical debt and how we're going to pay it off, or when we need to think about paying it off. And you know, you'll get it wrong more often than you get it right. But if you're being explicit about what debt you're taking on and calling it debt properly, it shouldn't be too hard to leave your future self a note saying, "This is when we think this will hurt." how we then go back to look at that and remind ourselves and all of that stuff, the same problem as a backlog, but it's probably smaller. Is there advice that you offer as engineers on your team on how to talk about it or help reframe that to be effective at prioritizing some of those things to get to give higher uh, priority on the, say that big long backlog. So the product team is finds that it's actually worthwhile to do that right now. In terms of, let me just clarify the question a little bit um, in terms of like, how do you have that conversation with product people to be like, oh, we need to pay off this debt, that that kind of thing? Yeah, like this is important enough to squeeze this in among the things that you're you're looking to get out for your for the end users or customers, you know, whatever, whatever your target user group is there. But these things are some pains that we're dealing with that would really make things better for the overall system. But they may not be immediately visible to you on the product side yeah sure i think that's always a really hard conversation like in the ideal world you're sort of following the scouting rule you are making it a little bit better every time you touch it and so you don't need to do those big bang tech debt payoff refactor stories that take a long time so you don't need to have that discussion with your product team you can have just a general sense of like when i say that this is a three-point story I have built into that estimate, like, I know this is an area that we need to tidy up a little bit and we're going to do that as we go along. I mean, I have also worked on projects where for like 
a year, effectively no no real feature development was being done because they were like refactoring the architecture to support a much larger vision. And it just took forever. It just took a really long time. Um, this is a massive pub- publishing platform. And it just took so long. And eventually the product team had to say, you've made a lot of progress, but we have to start shipping new features now. I, like I was a contractor in that situation. Um, and so I wasn't privy to those conversations and I don't know how it went, but like there was definitely a, a sense of frustration from the product team and a little bit of frustration from the tech team that like this refactor, this tech debt pay down was not ever seeming to get done. And eventually it was just like, okay, well, we just have to start shipping features now. And there'll be a small team that's still working on the, trying to pull the system into the grand new vision. But we can't dedicate the whole team to doing that anymore. And I never want to be in that situation again, because ultimately the software is for our users. And if we're not shipping new features, can they, will they just go and use something else? In this case, they couldn't because it was an internal tool for government. They had no alternative but to use the system. But like most systems aren't like that. Your users can walk, they can go somewhere else. But I can also imagine even like with a, say a government related type of project at some point there's accountability in the public right of like you know these stories are like the the rewrites that take way too long and they spend so much and there so it becomes like a reflection of the the government's management of funds and budgets and stuff like that like you can't get anything new done i'm kind of like air quoting that and and such but it's a it's a it's a very it's, it's an interesting challenge so one of the things I was really excited to get to talk to you about is because you've kind of navigated this world of having worked for many years and as a software consultant, working at an agency, I think even as an individual contractor at times, and also working at product companies. So I just wanted to confirm, where is the grass greener? Oh, you're cutting right to the heart of the matter, aren't you? <laughs> I really enjoyed my time working at an agency um, and working on loads of different things. What I found challenging and why I moved to like working on a long term on a product that I hope to work on for a long time. I wanted to do long-term thinking. With a lot of the agency work, I spent two and a half years working for one government agency. But I didn't know that. I knew I was there for three months. You know, I, I knew the contract would be renewed for another three months and and so I couldn't do any long-term thinking about like where will we take this system next? How can I influence decisions now? And so it was very like, it was very sort of day to day, like, oh, well, I might not be here. So I better not make these kinds of decisions. I can give my input to the people that will make those kinds of decisions, but maybe I shouldn't make those decisions because I won't be there to see it pay off. And I have worked on projects that other contractors have been on and they have used it as like a experimental playground to like try out things they'd read in a blog post and so the architecture it was a this was a rails app but it did not look like any rails app you or i had ever seen it was like it didn't use active record it used mongo as the database but it didn't use active record it used mongoid but it kind of had its own repository pattern on top of that so there were links in memory between objects but not in the database you always had to go through these layers it was very um, dependency injection it was very uh, hexagonal architecture all of that stuff and individually none of those is a problem but all of this wrapped together meant it was really hard and so i was like 
I didn't want to be that contractor, the contractor that had built that, that didn't see it out, didn't see the impact of that like experimentation and was cursed forevermore by the, by the developers that had to work on this thing because they're like, I'm coming in. I know what a Rails app looks like. It's a Rails app. I'll be able to say, oh, whoa, whoa, what's this? This is very different. I don't understand. And so that was the kind of thing that was frustrating me about working at an agency. It's like, I didn't know when I was going to be able to make decisions that I would have to see out in their entirety. And as I got more senior, I felt like I was being asked to make decisions like that. But I didn't know if I would be around. So I was often couching my um, advice to people in terms of like, well, you know, don't have to listen to me because I'm a contractor. I might not be here to see it pay off. And this is a this is a six month plan. I may not be here. So like, is I could just be lying. I don't know. Um, whereas now on a product product uh, company, the decisions I'm making, I expect to see out. If they are long-term decisions, I expect to see them see them pan out over those over those years. I'm also getting to do sort of engineering management leadership stuff where the decisions are not about code, they're about people. And that's really different and exciting for me. Um, I'm really enjoying going on that journey frustrating as it is to go from being like a very senior technologist to a very junior manager. Well, yeah, thanks for uh, providing some kind of some background there and sharing some some examples. I think that, that's, I hadn't thought about it that way, like thinking about the long term. I mean, we, my team tends to get to work with clients for several years, usually at a time, you know, if, if things go well, usually not more than like four or five years. But, but yeah, I think when you get into that whole long term thing, it, it does feel like you inherit something and you go in and, and sometimes even our clients are very short-term thinking because if you ask them like, what's the plan for the next four or five years of your app? They're like, I don't, I don't know. I, you know, so it's like, it's hard to kind of think that way where I guess if you were working in a product environment, I'm saying this as someone that has not worked in a product company for at least 15 plus years. It's, it's an interesting just kind of distinction there and thinking about it. what do you think if, if someone were to be looking to go into the world of becoming a software programmer, do you feel like you gained any advantages with working in the, say, contracting world for the amount of time that you did that put you at an advantage to work in a product environment? Or do you feel like they're just completely different tracks or actually there's I'm actually overthinking it and they're actually pretty a lot more similar outside of the short-term, long-term kind of approach there? Broadly speaking, working as a contractor or working as a in a product company, it's the same job. You know, we turn up at we turn up at nine, we boot up our our editor, we hit the keys for a while and then we go home. You know, it's it's pretty much the same. And you're these days we're all working some sort of agile methodology, removing tickets around the board, churning out features. Like it's it's pretty much the same. What did I get from working on from working as an agency? I got to work on lots of different systems. In a fairly short period of time I got to work on lots of different systems. And so I got a breadth of knowledge and it meant you would never be stuck necessarily working on like oh this thing's old you know like you wouldn't be reading about something that had come out and be like well we'll never get to use that because this thing's like this thing's stuck in a in an old version and we can't upgrade or the upgrade's not prioritized or whatever it is on an agency your next project comes along and if it's a greenfield you get to use that new thing if it's not a greenfield maybe it's just it's a completely different thing i, I mean i mostly worked on Rails apps, occasionally we had to work in slightly different technologies, but mostly on Rails apps, but other agencies or contractors, you could just work on loads of different stuff. And I think that is good for people earlier in their career to work across 
lots of different projects and see lots of different styles of stuff. But equally, working on a product as your first first job lets you see your own growth over time. Like we have some sort of juniors and mids in our organization at the moment and talking to them and saying like, well, just think back to six months ago, you, or a year ago, you like, look how far you've come. Like, and that's, and you can, you know, they can very easily go and look at the commits they were writing and the code changes they were making and the PRs they chipped because it's all there and they'll, they can see their own journey. I don't think there's one perfect path into software development. And I don't think there's one perfect path through software development, like whatever works for you. And I think oftentimes, as, as you asked at the start, like, is the grass greener on the other side? You're always going to be sitting there going, maybe it is. <laughs> or does it even turn out to be grass? It's actually just a dirt field. Um, <laughs> that's what I keep telling myself. So I don't ever have to change anything about my life. Um, <laughs> anyhow, so in terms of, you know, if you, if you, as much as you can remember about the consulting world, did you feel like there were, you learned how to be a good guest in another team's code base? I mean, you might have to ask some of the people whose code bases I, I visited <laughs> um, to get an answer there. But I I definitely felt like one of the f- most important things to do when you like visited someone else's code base was work out what the rules were, work out what the style was. Like, oh, you prefer loads of unit tests over like a handful of acceptance tests or oh, you write your code like this, or oh, you use this service pattern, or no, or you use this service pattern, or whatever it is. And I think trying to sort of get in and be as consistent as possible is an important feature of a contractor or someone from an agency who's going to work on a code base that's not theirs. That doesn't mean you can't come in and be like, oh, hey, I've worked on some other code bases, and I've seen this pattern used, and try and introduce some new patterns or changes to a system. But certainly... I felt like that wasn't necessarily always what they wanted from me as a contractor. You're often there as a like a hired gun, as it were, just like, can you come in and help us build this thing? And then you can go. And what they don't want from you is to, for you to come in, help them build that thing and be like, oh, also while I was here, I um, noticed all of these things and I think you should change them. You need to kind of pick your battles there, I think sometimes. We'll be back with our interview with Murray in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I want to take a quick moment just to say thank you for making time to listen to the Maintainable Software Podcast. If you're finding these discussions valuable, please consider sharing a link amongst your peers and or writing a review on Apple Podcasts to help spread the word. Also, is there someone that you think I should be interviewing on Maintainable? Shoot me an email to Robbie with a Y at maintainable.fm and state your case. And now, let's get back to our interview with Murray Steele. Do you find that it's much different for as you're recruiting new engineers for your own team and thinking about how they are onboarded to an existing team? Like, like especially if you're hiring someone that's more experienced coming in, and do you, is it the, the 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 strategy to blend or for at first and then to start making your uh, your cases for improving or iterating on things a little bit differently versus being the person that shows up and be like you're doing it all wrong. Here's the right way to do it. I know best. Yeah, I think. When I first moved to the product company, I was still wearing my I'm a visitor hat. 
you know i was still like i'd spent nine years in agency like it's ingrained but now and so i was very cagey about suggesting massive changes you know i introduced some things early on but i was very cagey about introducing massive changes now when people join the company i am interested in their first opinions because we're all we've all been working on it for two to three years like what it does and how it does it is it's like the air we breathe and we can't tell that it's um that it's it's smelly or there are better ways and so i am very interested in what people's like first opinions are and i would encourage people who join a product company to like open that discussion and be like hey what about this the problem you will have is this might be a great idea but are we going to like just convert our system to this new way of doing things across the board because the pain i'm sure you've you felt in some of the projects you've taken on is like if you introduce a new pattern and you don't follow through on it then you just have another way of doing things and someone doesn't know which bit of code to copy and paste to bootstrap the next feature they're writing so i think you have to you have to be pretty pro like this change is worth doing i'm worth doing across the code base i could be sold on the iterative like fix it as you go thing but if you're introducing a brand new pattern you only really get the benefit when it's like the majority of the code looks like that i think i think one of the things that this reminds me of is just thinking of like for those listening um one if you're going to be say joining a new do you have a new job a new position somewhere you're going to be the new member of a team but for those listening that are going to have someone join their team i think i've noticed and i definitely am guilty of this myself over the years where you might have that person someone come in ask some really good questions or like hey have you considered this type of thing before and then you're like yeah we talked about that or we tried that and it didn't work out or we just, at the, we, we ruled it out at the time. Like we talked about the two years ago, we already thought of that um, and can be quick to kind of dismiss it as a, in a way, way of being like, it's already being covered. And in hindsight, I realized I'm like, I've, I'm guilty of like discouraging in a weird way of like suggesting things because they might get like, well, Robbie said that they already tried that and it didn't work. I'm like, what? But I didn't say no, let's not never do it. It's just, but it was, but it can get in and, um, translated or their their memory re- recalls it as being like a, as a no forever type of thing. And so do you have any advice for people you know, like that you might even offer for your own team when you're recruiting new people to how to be open and have those conversations, even if it's something that you've definitely talked about and you're like, we're going to have to have this conversation again with people in the future. It's not the end of the world. Let's just, yeah, I'll leave it there as far as like, how, how would, how do you, what advice could you offer people to not deflate someone's uh, desire to want to share and ask questions like that? So on our code base, the, like every every engineer we bring on board says, oh, you use Minitest. Have you thought about using RSpec? And we have to say, well, yes, we have, we have thought about using RSpec, but we have a huge test suite. And we do not want to have two separate huge test suites. Um, and so like... It is a bit of a non-starter question, but I do not want to discourage every new engineer from having that conversation. Um, and I think you have to you have to let people have that conversation, and you have to be open to having that conversation. If it's something like this, where like the answer is probably like not until we are significantly larger and can just invest in like developer happiness time, like we're just not going to do it. 
like this is a bit of an extreme case, but there are probably other things where it's like, yeah, we spoke about this. We spoke about this two years ago. Share the context, but like be very open to the fact that it's it was two years, six months, whenever it was ago. And things might be different now. Your organization is probably bigger if you're hiring someone else in. And maybe now is the time to think about it. Maybe you've got rid of a bunch of code that relied on that old pattern where now like actually it wouldn't be so much of an effort to pull it over. Maybe there are better refactoring tools in your in your language that would make it easier to make that change now. Like maybe the direction of travel in your frameworks is like more towards that direction. I'm trying to think of an example in Rails that would apply, but I can't. Probably like the the maybe the the multi database stuff is an example where people are like, have you thought about having lots of like read replicas? You like it was hard before. Now Rails has made it really easy, so actually that architectural change might be something that's worth chipping away at now because it's it's easier to do. You know, I'm, I'm also curious. You know, as your transition with you know into this role of being a manager, and you kind of said that you know went from like a senior dev to like a junior manager type of scenario. Having been a you know what we call an individual contributor for many years, how has your own sense of accomplishment evolved? I'm guessing you're not like oh I checked off this many tickets this week. It's you know it's it's different. So you've been if you've been reading my blog, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's something that I am struggling with working out like how do I measure my deliverable output because i feel like a lot of the difference in being a like person delivering software on a team and supporting and growing people who are delivering software on a team is very different like the feedback loop is so so much longer like you might have a conversation with someone that tries to like bump and coach them out of a problem that they've got and that's you know it's a little bit like therapy. I mean, I'm not a trained therapist, but I could probably play one on TV now. Um, like you, you're just you don't know when you're going to get the reward from all of the work. Like, you know, when you're writing software, you you run the tests and you get a little green flag reward. You ship it, it builds, it deploys, and you can go and like see that change in the world, and that's quite immediate, depending on your like deploy scales. But like, you know, probably within a week of writing some code, it's out in the world, and you can. You can see it with people. And as a manager, I think it's rare that you get that immediate immediate kind of reward mechanism. And it's also quite rare to be able to measure the, the impact you're having on people in such an immediate way. So like, yeah, I, I, I've done a lot of thinking about this and reading and trying to work out like, how do I measure my worth and how do I measure the quality of my work and it's, it's hard um like i know you've been doing sort of managerial things and how have you found it like i i don't i don't understand it it's a it's it's a weird thing where i feel like there's moments it's, it's interesting because like i think about it's been about six months now since we hired someone to take over uh being the direct engineer like the a new a new engineering manager here for because i basically decided that I, I would fill in for parted ways with um, our previous one uh, about four and a half years ago that i would do it for six months and then we would hire someone and it turned into like a four year journey of me actually doing it so we finally hired someone again to do it and so it was a it was an interesting transition for me to go. Now I'm back in this scenario where I used to have a lot of one-on-ones with every almost every engineer on the team and now I 
have one person that directly reports to me. And it's not that engineering manager because he reports to someone else. And I basically work with like our marketing salesperson. And so my connection is very different right now. So if I go back and think to your, your question six months ago, when I was in that world, it was, yeah, it was definitely hard to get a good sense of, to find that there's like some measurable that I could be like, here, I have a scorecard of some metrics that I'm tracking, but it, it's also weird because I'm also in a kind of owning a business position. So I, I look at the other metrics of like, how are we doing? Are we making money? Are we profitable? And it goes into a lot of things. But I, I think I, for that four years or so, I, I just really leaned into the soft side of everything. I'm just being like, I really just feel like it's a good way to connect with people and establish relationships to listen, to try to get better at asking questions, to go a little deeper with people, just to foster relationship with them. So that was the thing that I was most nervous about when we hired someone is like, is someone going to be able to come in and be better than me? Because admittedly, you know, between you and me and nobody else is listening, right? In between those one-on-ones, I didn't actually have a lot of time to address things as deeply as I think they needed them to be. So if there was concerns about how we were organizing some things, like some things I'd be like, oh, I can make a decision on that. We can just do it differently now. But if like, oh, this is going to take a lot of deep thought and experimentation or research, but I've got to deal with this other business problem. So I didn't really feel like I was serving them in the way that they needed to be, which is why, because even they, some people on the team were like, why do we need someone like, we just like working with Robbie. But I'm like, but I'm like, I'm not really doing the job that you would get from having someone in a full-time position here. Like, like I want someone that's going to be here for you. It's going to champion you, going to help, it's going to push you and grow you differently. And I think if anything, I'm like, I'm, yeah, I was playing kind of like a counselor in a way at times and not the, um, but when it came to like some aspects of professional development and stuff like that, there was, I definitely had some shortcomings there. Um, I'm not really good at giving tough news to people. And I think that, or, we're pushing people as much as I think, I think people should just naturally do it themselves. And so I know that about me and I have that one little thing, like someone else could be way better at this than I can be. So anyways, I was just curious about that with you. Cause you know, it's, you have all these like subjective ways of measuring, like what's the sentiment of the team right now? Does the team feeling stressed or not? And then it was hard for me to not internalize that. I'm like, I'm just fucking everything up because the team's stressed. And it's like, Oh, but it's not like I'm not doing something and like I feel like I'm also the in a weird way. This is turning into me being the guest all of a sudden. But the, um, me feeling like if the team is feeling stressed, if an, en- an engineer is feeling really stressed about a project or a problem on a project or a client relationship challenge, somehow it's my fault because I'm subjecting them to it because I signed the contract with that client. I'm doing this to them. I need that client to keep paying us money to stay in business. So it's my fault. So I'm like, oh, I'm sorry, it's my bad. Um, and maybe there's some truth to that. I thought um, something you said that was really interesting was like, you had all these other other things you needed to do as well as like the the management side. And until recently, I also had other things to do. I was a tech lead and a person delivering software. And then I was, and I was also line managing people. And I've moved over to just doing the engineering management side. And so suddenly, like, a whole bunch of responsibilities have gone away. And I'm like, oh, I've got so much free time. What will I do with myself? And it's like, oh, I can really follow up on stuff now. I I can have, like, time to work on, like, we're doing a piece on sort of metrics for not just performance metrics, but also progression metrics and measuring people against our career development framework and 
like working out where it is that they need support and how to help them get better. And I don't think I would have been able to do that work if I was not doing a, a full-time engineering manager role. And that's that's quite exciting for me, I think, to not just be chatting to people and forming relationships, which is like a thing I really enjoy and like get a lot out of. But like now I can actually spend more time to dedicate to supporting them. And that feels really, really useful. Caveat everything I said before about measurability for myself. But yeah, feels really good. Hi there. Do you know someone who might be looking for assistance with their Ruby on Rails application? Planet Argon would love to meet them. We're offering a $1,000 referral bonus. Send someone our way, and if they sign up for services with Planet Argon, we'll give them a $1,000 discount. And in return, you'll get a check for $1,000 in the mail, just for knowing the right person. Hop on over to planetargon.com referrals for more information and to refer someone our way. That's planetargon.com referrals. Thanks. Talk about community. So you and I met uh, in the Ruby on Rails community many years ago now, and I know that you've been a longstanding co-organizer of the London Ruby user group. First thing is like, how did you find your way into that world? Um, maybe the abbreviated version of that. Um, I was dragged into it by a friend who we both know, James, who got me a job doing Ruby. We'd known each other since university. He had done his PhD using Ruby, introduced me to Ruby. Then we worked together, got a job doing Ruby, and there was a Ruby user group in London that we kind of both went to. And it was it was quite exciting to be in that community that early on. Um, there was a lot going on. It felt like it was really easy to like meet established heroes such as yourself and you know, find out all about this this like vibrant, exciting community of Rails and Ruby. I went to the Ruby user group a bunch. Um, it was a monthly meetup. And I got to know the organizer and he said to me, oh, hey, I'm going back to New Zealand for a few months. Um, do you want to run the next couple of meetings? And I was like, yeah, okay, that sounds fine. I could do that. I was obviously terrified of getting up on stage just to even introduce talks, let alone give them. And then when he came back, he's like, oh, I heard they went really well. You can do it forever now. <laughs> and I took him at his word and have not stopped. That's awesome. Admittedly, like I used to go to Portland Ruby user groups and Linux user groups. I co-founded a Linux user group back in the day. And this idea of having kind of like this localized community of people that you can get together and see face-to-face -face and talk about this technology that you're kind of excited about. Because at the time, I, I think back then, it didn't feel like there was like online communities. It was just different. It was just like, yeah, we've got IRC and things like that. But in terms of like showing up and getting to talk to some other people, like, oh, you know what I'm talking about? Because my friends, I'm excited about this thing, but my friends don't know what I'm talking about. And then, you know, just having a little bit more of that kind of social networking on, I guess, on a professional level. Because like my coworkers use .NET stuff and none of them are excited about what's Ruby, what's PHP, like any, like, why would you want to, like, you can't use open source. That's not a viable option. There's no commercial support. Who's going to be there when things break? Right. And all the different things we used to hear back in the day. Um, funny how things have changed over the years. But I, I'm so curious about, like, now that you've been doing it for such a long time, what as aspects about it, like, do you feel like have kept you wanting to stay involved and continue organizing it? And then I'm also was curious, just like how things have 
Have you noticed any, I mean, obviously you're not meeting in person due to the pandemic, but how had things been on a localized level been trending over the last few years? So I want to keep doing it because I still like, okay, I'm a manager now, so I should, I don't really write as much code as I used to, but I still really love Ruby as a language. Like I have this, this like superpower where like I have a computer and if it doesn't do what I want it to do, I can open my terminal and make it do things. Like I can, you know, I can fix problems and Ruby's the way I do that. Even like my day-to-day stuff, I'll write little Ruby scripts to do something, you know? And so I still get a lot out of Ruby as a language. Um, and I want to hear what other people are doing with it. Um, I find that a talk I saw at a user group or a conference or whatever will come back to me years later when it's relevant to my work. And yeah, I might not remember all the details, but I'll remember enough about it to be able to go and like Google it and get deeper into it. And so I still get a lot out of hearing people talking about this language that I love. And I still learn a lot about it, even though I've been doing it for like too long. Um, So I think there's still something really useful in like not just local user groups, but conferences and all that stuff. I think they're, they're really good. And local user groups are monthly, tiny monthly conferences that are really low effort to go to and attend. And you'll like sometimes, spoiler for everyone who goes to the big paid conferences, sometimes your speakers will give versions of that talk for free at your local user group as a rehearsal or something. Um, sorry, RailsConf, I've just busted your pay, your payment model. And I, so I think like these local groups are are great. They're they're super useful and they're so easy to get into and watch some talks. What's challenging about them in the pandemic is it's pretty clear that the most important part of them is when you get to hang out afterwards. Like I know lots of people who have got jobs through attending LRUG. I certainly got my not this job, but my previous job through attendance of LRUG. And, you know, like that just isn't happening. Like the, the, the after bit, the, the chatting and networking stuff is really hard to do in the pandemic. And so accordingly, like certainly during the pandemic, the, the attendance has dwindled somewhat because who wants to hang out on a Zoom after work, you know, and it's harder. But we've been able to open our doors to many more attendees and many more speakers. Like we've had speakers from all over Europe, a few speakers from America, like, you know, it's, we've managed to widen our doors, which has been amazing. But the key thing, the networking part is, is gone. And I don't really know how to replicate that in the pandemic. There's also been a bit of a downward trend in attendance, which I think is something to do with like what you were talking about, like, oh, I can go to these user groups and talk about this thing that like, they won't let me use at work and no one cares about. And Ruby in particular, every startup's using Rails. Like there's a lot of like, just use boring technology, use Rails and Postgres and put a React or Vue on the front end and you're like, that's a stable known technology. And so that thing that a Ruby user group might have attracted people to where like, oh, this is the cool thing that I don't get to use at work. Everyone's using it at work now. And I think that has had an effect on attendance of like the local groups. I'm still a champion of local groups, but I can understand where people might not want to come to something like that. Because they want to go to like, I don't know, like an Elixir meetup or or something else. Because the grass is maybe greener over yeah. there. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> nice callback. <laughs> it's interesting thinking, I've noticed with like the people I hire in the last say five years, five to 10 years maybe every day, have become less interested 
in that type of thing only because in a weird way, because uh, this isn't like a good or bad thing, but I think there's like, I felt for a long time, we benefited from a lot of like early excited energetic adopters. So like the early adopter type people and they go on to do what they do long-term and maybe they move on to some new technology. And so they're kind of bouncing around every so often to chase the new exciting thing that they're really excited about new things. And then there's people that come in kind of behind like, oh, this is kind of a stable environment. I can get a I can get a career. I could, this can be a career. I want to program during the day. I don't really want to spend time in my free time thinking about like, oh, I got to go network with other programmers. Like that's not as interesting to me. Like, that's like, why would I want to go do that? I don't understand. So when I've, I found myself like, oh, I'm like, I have a bunch of people on team right now. I'm like, I don't feel like they're as interested or even see the value in the community aspect of it as well. They're like, I can Google things when I have problems. Like, oh, I'm on, or maybe they were part of a boot camp and they keep network with some of the people they were in boot camp with or things like that. But building, like continuing to build that kind of professional network of like peers around this technology. It's like, they're like, I don't, I don't, I don't really understand why, why I don't have time for that. Or it's not even a priority for me, I guess. It's, it's just like, I don't need that. Um, if I have a problem, I can Google something and I can pick up some books or, um, go to a conference or watch some talks on, on, on YouTube or something. So it's, it's a, it's a different thing, but I'm, I'm so, so I'm always curious if it's like a early adopter thing can play a weird influence on that, but I don't, I don't, I don't know what to make of that. I also haven't been to a local user group that wasn't something that my company hosted in our office where I just had to walk 15 feet over in probably seven or eight years. And so that was like about a programming language. I mean, I've been to some other user groups for other things like women in tech and diversity initiatives just because I'm curious to like see what's going on in other communities, but, and other things that are interesting to people, but just like, it's always just this, like, I'm like, how, how well is the user group model going to persist and, or are people just finding online communities? Cause now there's like discord communities with like a couple thousand people hanging out and talking about stuff in a channel. And I'm like, oh, I, does that replacing some of that desire? But we have this older person view of like, we want to get together and see each other face to face. And like, I want to look you in the eye and like, know that like we're, we, we're bonding over this. I do wonder how useful a steward I am of the London Ruby user community, given that I am this ancient person now who has different needs and desires from their day job. You know, I, I no longer code day to day. Should I really be running this community? You know, but also a lot of the people who come through boot camps, they bring with them an amazing alumnus network, alumni, whatever the right way of saying that, that is. I didn't do Latin. I don't know. Like they bring with themselves an amazing network of peers that they can uh, tap into. And so that thing of like, oh, I'll go to this Ruby user group to find other Ruby users and they will help my career. Like they don't, they don't need that because like be that hanging out in the like Slack for the like people who've gone through the bootcamp or just hang out with this, like, you know, a mailing list or a Facebook group or WhatsApp with the cohort that they went through. They've got this network built in, um, in a way that I don't think I had when I came through like my, my path into my career, the communities that seem most vibrant to me looking outside, it's less focused on our specific technology and it's more focused on a sort of demographic like the, there's a really great organization started in London called Codebar. Um, I don't know if that's made it to the States or not, but it's a sort of get people from underrepresented communities into, into tech and they have coding workshops and coaches and they have like 
monthly sort of user group sessions, but it's 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 a polyglot community. And I think those are the ones that are more vibrant and exciting. And it's less about specific technologies. I mean, that's what, I, that's what it feels like to me as an outsider looking in. For all I know, the like React community is incredibly vibrant and like the Ruby one used to be. And it's just like Ruby is, is old and unloved and people don't want to do it. I, I, don't, I genuinely don't know. But um, I think there is something different about the path that people are taking into programming these days that means they don't need some of the stuff that you or I might have needed in terms of the community support because they get to bring one with them. You know, as you've seen technologies kind of ebb and flow, you know, like as in terms of like how popular, um, you know, things may or, or how embraced they are over the, over at times over the years, let's say Ruby and Rails, we both, we both have a vested interest and we think it's a great platform and, and I can try to be as much of an evangelist as I can be about it. But I also realize that a lot of the people that have been in the community for a long time, have have other issues like they're they're doing things now. like they're managing people now they're running businesses they're you know they're not spending their time on Twitter trying to hype Ruby on Rails you know DHH isn't trying to hype Ruby on Rails all the time he's got other business things he's working on and you know occasionally he's helping trying to change like legislative legislation in the United States against Apple or something so I'm like he's taking on different things and so it's like a interesting thing where it's like a bunch of people are kind of like left being like, oh, we're using this thing that we're really excited about, but nobody really has the time to really like promote it in the way that like people are excited about some new technology because it's kind of like keeping that like, well, not everybody's talking about it. So it's like, I always feel like it's an interesting branding marketing problem than more of like, oh, it's just old tech. It's just like, we've just kind of gotten comfortable. That's my reflection if I'm kind of being honest with myself. Like I'm too comfortable, so I don't need to spend all my time trying to like, how to how great it is and also we're not the underdog anymore maybe we are we're now we're the underdog and now we're like we've been around for too long so um the dinosaur technology yeah <laughs> yeah absolutely the um rails i think is in this weird place where it's still not the go-to enterprise thing like there are still thousands more java programmers than there ever will be Ruby programmers, so many enterprises are using like massive Java installations and they're never, probably never will be that size, that scale for Ruby. But I think Ruby and Rails is probably getting lumped in, in the like, it's not cool granddad stakes of with Java, even though it's much smaller. So you're still an underdog against like Java and in the eyes of like large businesses, but you're not cool and new and exciting. And I don't know what is new and cool and exciting. People are talking about like as as ever, like front-end development frameworks are still like new and exciting and cool, and particularly being able to run those on the server as well. Feels like that's quite ex- exciting and cool still, because there's always a new one coming out. But yeah, I don't I d I don't know. I think you're right. Like Rails is safe and good, and you're going to be able to do amazing things with it. It still has some of the baggage of the past, like, oh, Rails doesn't scale. Like, it does. All technology scales grow up. Or it's not cool and exciting. It's a, I think it's in that weird, the Gartner hype cycle thing. Are we in the in some kind of trough or something? <laughs> Maybe. I'm just wondering yeah, if there's things that we can be doing in the Ruby community to help change the narrative and take control of the narrative a little bit more. But I have a guest coming out in, in, in the near future that I'm hoping to dig into that very, very topic with. So more to come on that. A couple of 
quick last questions for you. One is Clio AI hiring at the moment? Yeah, we are. I mean, we're a startup. We're pretty much always hiring. We have some a couple of open positions uh, for backend developers, sort of mid to senior, um, to join existing squads. We are a sort of finance fintech company. Our mission is to fight for the world's financial health. We are really interested in making sure that people who use our product learn the most that they can about their like financial world and get good advice and get better at doing that. And we and we do that with a sort of chatbot that is not afraid to like, it doesn't sugarcoat what it says to you about your finances. And then we have sort of paid, paid products that will give you access to financial services that will hopefully improve your, improve your standing. Thanks. I'll definitely include links to your like job site or whatever on in the, in the show notes for everybody. And is there a non technical, non software related book that you find yourself recommending to people on a regular basis? This is the question I've probably been thinking about my answer to the most. And the, I don't know if it counts as non-technical, but the, the actual book that I have recommended to people more more than anyone else is, is The Manager's Path by Camille Fournier. It really helped me becoming an engineering manager. But I think the answer that I want to give is that everyone should read more short fiction. I think getting your head, like short fiction is really good at just exposing you to an idea and like widening your viewpoint. And when we build software, we're not usually building it for us. We're very lucky if we're building software for us that other people want. And what we need to understand is other people's viewpoints and have empathy with other people. And I find that short fiction, I can read short fiction that I might not otherwise read, like pick up, like go into your local bookstore and ask them for a recommendation of like a, a big anthology of like new short fiction writing, something like that, and just read stuff that you wouldn't otherwise be exposed to, read viewpoints you wouldn't otherwise be exposed to. And I think it, it'll help you, help you see uh, see the, the wider world and understand other people and like have more empathy for for the people that we call users of our software. You know, I think that would be like really important for everyone to try. And short fiction also, if you don't like it, you know, 20 minutes later, it's done. <laughs> well, excellent. Well, thanks, so. thanks, for, thanks for sharing that. And I'll also include a link to Camille's book and a link to the episode that where she was on the show as well. Where can listeners best follow your ruminations and thoughts on software development online? I don't really... Like, so uh, you can follow me on Twitter at um, hlame, which is H-L-A-M-E. Or, like, I have a... A website where I've recently started doing um, month notes, which is kind of like a monthly, here's what I was doing thing, similar to, I don't know if week notes are a huge thing in the States, but they're big in the sort of UK blogging community. And I couldn't commit to doing weeks, <laughs> so I do months. Um, but that, that's available at h-lame.com slash notes. Well, it's been such a delight having you join us today on Maintainable Murray. Thank you so much for talking shop with us. Oh, thanks for having me. It was fun. 